Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. So this week I headed to Guatemala for the Monitor Plus User Conference. And, uh, you know, it's my first time in Guatemala. Um, but it's not my first time with the uh, Monitor Plus uh, team. We've done a couple of events with them now. Um, last one in Bogota, I think. And uh, so we have uh, Giovanni Castellano. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, um, who's joining us. You're the VP of... Sales and Marketing. Sales and Marketing for uh, Monitor Plus. Um, but tell me a little bit about uh, Guatemala, first of all, for those that aren't uh, familiar with it. Well, Guatemala is, is uh, actually is, uh, the first country in Central America. <laughs> we are, we are, in, uh, we are uh, descendants from, from the Maya civilization. So there's a lot of Mayan ruins around here. A I lot noticed of, that. A yeah. lot of Mayans. So, yeah. I mean, you were telling me that when the Spanish came to Central America, this is where they came first of all. Yeah, they they, they actually they arrived. I mean, the first important one was in Mexico right. with the Aztecs. Right, right. And they 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 followed South Pattern, trying to find out what else they found, and they found Guatemala. I mean, Guatemala okay. with Mayans. Actually, the, the, the Mayan culture is, is right in the south of Mexico, Mexico and uh, Guatemala is considered like the heart of the Mayan civilization. Right. So yes. That's a very pre-Hispanic, pre-Hispanic uh, civilization. So we're, we're in Antigua? Antigua. Antigua. Antigua was founded by the Spanish. That was back in the 1500s, I think, 1500s or 1600s. So this is a very, a very unique... Yeah, we're surrounded by three different volcanoes. Yeah. One of them still active. One is um, still active, yeah. Which is which well, is one is uh, we call it the wa- the water volcano. Yeah. yeah. The other is the fire volcano, <laughs> and the other one is uh, Acatenango, I think. Acatenango. Yeah. Those are the three volcanoes. We have thirty-seven volcanoes in Guatemala. And and uh, tell me why Monitor Plus, as an organization, has been based in Guatemala. That's a good question. Our CEO, our founder, Jorge Domingo, he's Guatemalan, he's uh, uh, ex-IBM, he, he was IBM until 1991. Uh, IBM decided to, to sell uh, all the operations in Central America, so uh, at that time he took the decision. And he went that was out. a management buyout of the IBM business, was well, it? Or? Yeah, no, the thing is, that IBM was, in 91, they were, they were about to go bankrupt. I remember IBM in that, that, that yeah, time, yeah. IBM was really doing bad because they were mainly a hardware company and everything yeah. was moving towards business, yeah. to, to, I mean services software, yeah, yeah. And, and, and software. So they decided to sell um, the, the Central America operation, including the Dominican Republic, and they, they sold operation to local investors. And they kept uh, stock participation in, 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 in the company. So that's the only alliance in the world where IBM is partner, and uh, GBM, which is the name of the new company, uh, that was founded back in '91. Yes. Uh, 
is uh, the exclusive uh, IBM distributor for the region. Okay. A little bit of trivia for you. My, my first internship. I did at IBM really? in Australia, so yeah. <laughs> it was funny because, uh, uh, you know, I, I had, uh, I, I was um, a coder, you know, back in the day. I would learn, I taught myself coding at school. Okay. Um, in fact, I used to do this little, th you know, when we get coding assignments, I would get other students to pay me to write their code because <laughs> I would try and see how many different ways I could code the, uh, the answer to the assignment. Anyway, which so, was that was wonderful. By the way, I was uh, I, I I taught computer science. That was oh, that's right. You yeah, ba back science, in the nineties, yeah. I was yeah. I, I taught computer science and and so I taught students how to code and it was yeah, yeah. it was beautiful. I mean, yeah, it was yeah. very creative thing. I think they hated, but I mean, yeah. it was part of there. So, so yeah, so this uh, this company. Um, it was it's, it's still the, the the IBM exclusive distributor for the region, and Jorge, when he decided that when that kind of a spin-off happened, he decided to become independent. So he invested in another small firm in Guatemala that they were kind of struggling and trying to take off. But at that time, it was a software company, but they were doing all these kind of things. But how did? Uh you guys come to specialize in fraud and this is the, this is the where is the where the where the where is where is here's where the answer comes actually what happened is um in 90 98 i think um most of the institutions that were concerned about the y2k effect okay so jorge decided to take a group of uh, developers uh, within the company and to develop this, what they, he called the X project. And basically it was a real-time engine, basically, right. a rule-based engine. So uh, they took uh, three years to develop that, that, that product, they launched it in Guatemala this because was it was developed in Guatemala. That was uh, 98, 99. Right. Yeah. So uh, they launched it and Oh, of course, the the first client. So is, was it was an there. expert system? Or it was an expert system. Yeah, it was yeah. a role-based system, 100%. So for, for those unfamiliar, this is early artificial intelligence, yes. right? The rules-based engine stuff, the expert uh, systems were our early attempts at uh, coding. Exactly. Coding uh, artificial intelligence. And we found out that, we found out that um, um, mainly auditors, there were interested in the product, trying to find out uh, uh, unusual activities within right. institutions. So we started selling uh, the, the engine that was back in, in 2000, uh, just like an open rules engine. Uh, but like uh, two years later, we figured out that the, the best thing to do was to create models around that engine. So we decided to do an, uh, a rule, uh, I mean, a, a, a model for Fraud prevention for credit cards, uh, for branch, for internal fraud. And so we start developing our own models powered by the engine. Uh, and then in 2007, we incorporated, 2006, I think, that we incorporated neural networks. And we did it because the franchises, MasterCard and Visa, they were requiring that the, the, those rural engines, they were uh, also powered by artificial intelligence. Okay. So, so were you supplying um, fraud management stuff for MasterCard and Visa? 
Well, no, not necessarily for them, but uh, since banks, they in were... In partnership with in them, partnership. the banks, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah, so okay. that, that was... Uh, but in parallel, we also find out another opportunity was uh, money laundering. Right. So banks that are regulated, they require a tool, a system, to do a continuously monitoring, monitoring about uh, yeah, yeah. unusual activities. Uh, so that was another niche market, really important. I mean, you know, let's let's dive into AML stuff and and some of the specifics because, you know, when we look at uh, money laundering, um, you know, globally, you know, we're, we're pretty ineffective at preventing money laundering. Yeah. Right? The latest statistics are maybe one to two percent of money exactly. laundering we stop. Why is this such a hard problem to to resolve? Well, I think. The first one is because it's something that is imposed by the regulator. And when you have some regulation, you try to, to, to comply. That's it, pretty much, comply. But you're not digging into the real problem. Right. So that's, that's one of the problems. So I we think. have like FATF and the, the, the special rules, the 40 rules and, and the, the other ones. You know. But when, when we look at the way the industry as a whole has tackled it for terrorist financing and um, you know, uh, criminal uh, money laundering, you know, it's this game of whack-a-mole. We're trying to identify suspicious transactions. And, and, but we have so many false positives that happen through that system today. But I think of um, the future of money laundering and fraud management more like the way we think about cybersecurity today. The yes. Systems that will track and identify suspicious behavior and stop the, those suspicious actors. From the technology and operational perspective, the problem with, with fraud versus AML is when, when you're doing a fraud monitoring, you get a feedback, okay, all the time. If you raise an alarm or alert that uh, is a, uh, a potential threat, uh, someone is going to say yes or not right. all the time. The problem with AML is you are not, uh, you don't have to do that. What you have to do is you have Until to... Until it becomes a crime, you don't have to... And you don't it. have, still yeah. you don't have the feedback from the regulator. Right. Because what you have to do is you have to document the whole thing. Yes. And you, you have to give you have to build a case for exactly. the criminal justice. And you don't know at the end um, you don't know if that was that was a, a real a, money laundering or a false positive. Exactly. So yeah. that's that's part of the problem why you have so much uh, false positive in yeah, the right. AML space. Yeah, yeah. In the fraud space is different, and the, that's why uh, uh, machine learning is becoming so popular in, in, so in, in the fraud. In I shared a statistic with the, the group today um, during the presentation. I talked about the, the difference between the Chinese mobile wallet systems and you know, internet uh, credit card usage mm -hmm. in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and it probably will surprise many people listening to the show right now that the, the fraud rates on Chinese mobile wallets are a fraction of credit card fraud that we see in North America. Um, and, and generally, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. in, in Western Europe and so forth, right? Um, one ten thousandth, you know, like the official numbers is 0. 0.0006 basis points of fraud for Alipay versus 11.2 basis points of fraud for... Yeah, it sounds for like, an, like in a utopia. Yeah. So part of the reason I hypothesize that Alipay is so much better at handling fraud 
is a couple of different reasons. One is it's a very modern tech stack. Mm -hmm. So they have fraud monitoring systems built into the tech stack natively with some machine learning and AI for sure. And secondly, um, that uh, the Chinese financial system is now based on facial recognition and biometrics, not based on old forms of identity which can be easily um, frauded. So your social security number in the US, your driver's license, all of that. We know that all of that stuff can be copied. It's, it's no longer securable in the, in the sense of sort of long-term fraud protection. So when you're dealing with the fraud stuff, you can use machine learning, you can track more and more fraud, but isn't it fundamentally about fixing identity and, and fixing sort of the core technology? Kind of. Partially, yes. Yeah, if you, you fix that, you solve part of the puzzle. But you still have one problem, especially the, that depends on the side of the world, on the, on the perspective of, of societies and everything. Because if you go to Europe and you try to talk about internal fraud in Europe, you're not going to get any kind of attention. Because cultural things. Like internally within organizations. Yes. Like in banks. Yeah. But we know that the biggest frauds that have happened historically are employee-based frauds. Yeah. But in in countries, developing countries, like most in Latin America, in in Africa, you really got an issue there. So so what I'm saying is fraud, it moves in different ways. Okay? So when when you're thinking about... uh, um, Identity and, and biometrics and stuff like that that helps a lot with the from the consumer perspective, right? Okay, uh, but still that's why the the multi-layer approach for fraud prevention is the best one because you're coming different different layers. The recommended are five. The first one is is related to the device. That's where you can you can have uh, facial recognition and stuff like that. Right. So the device is one. Then the navigation, behavioral, or what also is called behavioral biometrics. Right. Okay. Or and, heuristics, we might call it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then it's related to your account, account centric fraud. Right. And then in the four layer, you have a multi a, a, a multi product and multi channel approach. Right. What is called also omni channel. So you're going different layers, but that's most of the time related to the consumer, from the consumer perspective, from, from the cardholder and things like that. But you're always going to have the internal, the internal threat all the time. And uh, when you have uh, the criminal rings uh, organizations with people within organizations in the banks, right. you got a problem. And that's what you the, the, right. this is, is, right. is a, the organized is, fraud. Yeah. Uh, or even, um, you know, even when we've seen big frauds, sometimes big frauds have happened just because someone who has control over trading platforms and things like that, just it just they get they run away with it because they're trying to cover losses or whatever. And, um, you know, FTX is a good example of, of that, I think, to some extent, although you could point to fiduciary uh, management as a, as exactly. a key problem. Yeah. You wouldn't believe the, the, the amount of fraud because uh, because uh, internal threat. I mean, you only need a, 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 a insider to know about uh, an account is being dormant for a while. Right. Okay. And that that's a usual operation. I mean, it's just typing an account number and see if that how long that account is being dormant. 
So let's let's take a step back. Tell me about the advancements that we've already made in fraud management that have been effective. Well, definitely the fraud management from technology perspective, there are two big, big, big buckets. The first one is rule based. That's where the expert uh, the expert judgment takes place, and that's still valid, and it's going to continue to be valid because humans that are into the fraud prevention business, they have this sense of what to place in terms of a rule because they really know what's going on. So they they can create scenarios that are not easily doable with machine learning. Right. Because one of the problems with machine learning, which is the second bucket, is that you need a lot of information. You need a lot. A data, lot. Right. Yeah. So a lot of data. But like all machine learning AI we're learning, it, it, it's about training those engines properly. So you, you still need good fraud managers, people that know those rules to be able to choose what data to filter. Right? And what is becoming a really powerful combination is the, 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 what they call an ensemble of technologies, which right. is the rule-based systems plus machine learning. Yeah. That combination is, is becoming really powerful because you can put the, the, the expert criteria in, into a rule, but you have a powerful algorithm that is gathering a lot of information, learning in the process, uh, and it's very accurate. So when you go in to do an implementation at a major bank, you know, for example, I would imagine part of the issue is um, getting access to the right data because you have all these disparate legacy systems in a, in a bank. That's the so biggest forth. challenge always. So do you guys have to like invest in building out middleware and, and sort of uh, figuring out how to pull the data before you can execute? Yes, okay. but it still is really hard because of legacy systems, they right. have disparate system platforms and you right, want right, right. some information. You always, have, you always have pieces of information right. and that's the problem. And the problem uh, the, the banks are facing is IT people, of course, top priority is business. It's not uh, fraud right. prevention. It's right. not regulations. It's not. So what they're doing is that they're developing code for the business to make money, and 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 that's uh, that's the major challenge that the fraud units have. That they they don't have time. They always uh, waiting. Well, that's month. an argument for automation. Yeah, like, I guess you could say. Um. So where does this go over the next ten or twenty years? Well, I think. It, Machine learning is is taking off. The challenge is data. That's one. I mean, you really need data, a lot of data, and the good quality data. And that's that's. The other one is orchestration. You need to orchestrate different systems because the problem is with those layers that I mentioned, the five layers. You're going to find many vendors. Mm. An average bank, you might find easily from eight to ten different vendors. And most of the time, the problem is they don't talk to each other. Right. So they have different scores, okay? Uh, there's a vendor that is, is, uh, is analyzing the device and says, okay, this uh, device, it looks risky, and it's going to give you a score. Uh, someone, another vendor, it might be looking at the transaction. You say, well, this amount is unusual for this customer, okay? But they don't talk to each other, and that's yeah. the biggest challenge. So orchestration is, is the real future of fraud prevention. Yeah, yeah. If you put all those I systems together. 
No, I mean, I, I can tell you from the early days of movement, we had a lot of uh, Eastern European um, identity theft, trying to open accounts to do uh, ACH fraud, mm -hmm. you know, in the US. And it was, a, in, the, in the end, we were able to stop about 90% of that uh, activity just by learning the browsers that the fraudsters were using. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like a very simple technique. Exactly. We just, got a, we, just, we just got a new customer from Argentina. It's a, it's a digital bank only. And, and when they launched their, their app, they got, they were expecting, I don't know, 10,000 new accounts. They got 70,000. Yeah. But uh, 40, 50% of those accounts were fake. Yeah, we had similar numbers. Yeah. And, 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 and that's, a, that's a common problem. That's when you need a multi-layer system because otherwise you're just protecting the first layer and, and that's the problem. You need to correlate those. And the challenge, again, is you have different vendors and you have different business units trying to, to I mean, right. trying to different, avoid fraud, but they don't talk to each other. Different else. priorities yeah. as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, fair enough. All right, let me bring in uh, Jose Ruiz, right? Yeah. Uh, Jose, you're the you're product manager at yeah. Monitor Plus. Um, uh, I want to dive in a little bit into the problem of AML. We were talking about this offline a little bit, money laundering. Um, why is it that we're so ineffective at a AML today? Okay, so the first thing is uh, I want to consider that we question where we get that conclusion. Because we may see that regulators publish uh, that they received in a year 700,000 reports or something like that but they only processed about a thousand. So the thing is, we don't really have any visibility onto what those reports were, how many of them are repeats, how many institutions uh, provided the same type of reports about the same type of accounts or people. Uh, and the other part is that uh, it's mostly uh, only the financial space and some other uh, large asset or investment related um, industries that are being regulated. And those are the only ones that not only have to comply, but also provide the information that uh, and the efforts to uh, actually fight against uh, money laundering. But there's uh, and, and and finally, there's uh, also the fact that uh, this tends to be um, a local effort in terms of uh, countries working on their own. There's very little collaborative and information right, but, sharing. But, right, but the AML crimes tend to be multinational, right? They tend to yeah. be suspicious actors offshore. And so which, so if you're going to solve this problem, particularly from an automated, automation perspective, identifying bad actors, mm -hmm. you need data sharing, right? Cross-border yeah. data sharing. But that's a tough, a tough ask. I, t I can tell you, like six years ago, I met with FinCEN in mm -hmm. the US, you know, the... Um, it, the, the regulator looks after financial crime. And, uh, you know, uh, they, they said, yes, we absolutely agree, but we don't know when that that's going to be politically viable. Right? Yeah. That was essentially the answer they gave. They said, yes, to fix AML, we're going to have to have broad international data sharing agreements. That is not politically tenable right now for America, you know? There's, there's that, you know, there's... In, in terms of collaboration internationally, that political will is usually lacking. Uh, but there's also the fact that, uh, for instance, regulators who could locally be a great source of collaboration, 
usually enforce, but whenever, specifically in the case of Finston, for example, um, they, they have certain um, um, lax uh, criteria when it comes to, to uh, current uh, uh, yeah, Anti-Money yeah. Laundering Act yeah. 2020 uh, uh, requirements Look, I, that they I, set. The, one of the worst kept secrets in financial services is the fact that New York, London, Dubai, all, you know, the banking uh, sector in those major cities makes a lot of money yeah. out of money laundering. You know, I, I, I don't know if you guys remember Charlie Schrem, who was the founder of BitInstant, the first Bitcoin exchange mm -hmm. in the States. Mm -hmm. I had Charlie Schrem on the show many times and I had him on the show the day before he went into prison for two years for money laundering crime, which was retrospectively applied because they changed the rules about Bitcoin becoming a money laundering vehicle and so forth. They applied that retrospectively and put him in jail. The day he was going into jail, HSBC had a $1.7 billion fine for yeah. Mexico uh, uh, money laundering uh, uh, And terrorism finance, right. that was. Yeah. And, and you look at that situation and you say, well, first of all, why didn't anyone from HSBC go to jail, right? I mean, this is a big, big, big money laundering. Way bigger than the million dollars that uh, Bid Instant traded on Bitcoin on the Silk Road for drugs, right? Um, you know, but uh, I mean, th this is sort of at the heart of the problem. The banks make a lot of money out of this as, as, as it is today. That's why a lot of it gets a blind eye turned to it. But where, um, when do you think that's going to change? Or is it going to change? Well, it's a good question because the political landscape doesn't seem to be going in a way that we're going to actually collaborate. Uh, but I think that at least locally, we can because there are some uh, efforts from regulators to instill a collaboration information sharing. There's uh, some trend to start local registries, national registries of uh, beneficial ownership. Um, but th there's always the fact that uh, it, it all comes back down to the original data. Is the data up to date? Is it reliable? Is it complete? All of that. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, in terms of Monitor Plus's business overall, what impact is artificial intelligence having now to, to this business overall? Well, um, it's a mix because our system actually provides uh, a hybrid between the expert models that apply the expert knowing how the rule-based models and all that. And, and those and, expert systems are based on compliance process and policy in many cases. So, they're, yeah. so they, they have some structural element to them. Right? Yeah. And as well, the, uh, the AI aspect of it, which allows the continuous learning and, and the uh, improved uh, detection models, right? Yeah. But it always relies on an input and it always relies on the expert. Uh, so you might know that AI, the, the most, uh, the greatest performance from AI uh, derives from a black box. But the problem is that uh, from the regulation side, there's always a need for some explainability. And it, you can't simply have a black box from that side. And, and also, if you have a black box, there's a lot of biases that could come into play mm. and a, a lot of errors that could be taken into account that the model could be considering and, and uh, creating alerts for. 
uh, that you need to fix. So you always, at least at the point that we're in, you still need a balance between human and machine. Okay. All right. Well, that's, uh, that's good to know. Tell me about the conference and uh, what's been happening in Guatemala this week. Great. So uh, we just started today. It's uh, been going great. We have about 240 people from around uh, Latin America that have visited us. Uh, these are very committed uh, professionals. And uh, we've had conferences uh, today regarding uh, artificial intelligence, money laundering, fraud prevention, uh, some of banking innovation, which as well might include artificial intelligence and how it can be used to uh, not only boost uh, the business, but also benefit the customers and provide real value. So where can people find out more about Monitor Plus? They can visit our site at uh, plusti.com. And what's the TI for people who aren't familiar with the... So the original name for the company was Plus Technologies and Innovations, but uh, for marketing purposes, it has been shortened into Plus TI. Great. (laughs) Well, uh, for both of you, thanks for joining us on Breaking Banks today and all the best uh, for the rest of the conference. Thank Thank you. you very much. This show is brought to you by Alloy Labs. As much as we love talking on the show, we believe that action is more valuable than talk. Alloy Labs is the industry leader in helping fearless bankers drive exponential growth through collaboration, exclusive partnerships, and powerful network effects that give them an unfair advantage. Learn more at AlloyLabs.com. Alloy Labs. Banking Unbound. This is Roberto Capudici, your host. Today we have an exceptional guest, Mr. Jahed Moman from Barcelona, Spain. And what we're talking today about, uh, yeah, again, we're talking about carbon, carbon credits, uh, and all these things that are green, right? It is green impact, green, green like the walls behind our mm-hmm. guest Jahed. But now, today we are talking about the color blue. Because, uh, and it's going to be a beautiful discovery for many people, there is more absorption of uh, uh, carbon that is captured by things in the sea compared to those uh, captured in the forest. And this is really a revelation for me. I haven't thought about it. You think that uh, we breathe thanks to the tree that produce, you know, like uh, oxygen for us, but there are algae and there are a lot of plants in the sea they do a much better work. So those get monetized as well in terms of uh, the work they do and the space that, uh, you know, they take. And we're going to discuss this. So welcome to Breaking Bank Europe. Uh, You can give us a little bit of an introduction about yourself and how you find yourself into the blue carbon uh, board. Definitely. Thank you for having me. Um, so I I run a venture fund called Cerulean Ventures, which is just the combination of blue and green. <laughs> Actually, if you end up going to the website, uh, that's what the color means. And we basically are interested in uh, creating planetary scale regeneration and climate impact through nature markets and energy markets. And so uh, we came to this space, basically, my partner and I have been in this space for about seven years. Um uh, collectively, we've been looking at, uh, we both started in tech and open source software and blockchain. And we very much saw an opportunity here, you know, on the fintech side, because like you said, there's, um, 
there is a lot of interest in carbon and carbon credits and carbon capture because we're in a context where if you haven't been paying attention there's a there's a freaking heat wave in europe right now i'm sweating i don't know if we use the video for this thing but i cannot stop sweating here it's like 70 percent humidity and 30 degrees celsius um but anyway why why is blue carbon important for all this stuff right well right. basically we um if you look, like you said, 90% of the world's carbon is actually stored in the ocean, depending on the U.S. There's a number of studies on this, 80 to 90% of it. And it's stored in a various number of ways. It Actually, it can be stored even by the creatures in it, right? Like whales capture a ton of carbon, actually, when they die and sink to the bottom of the ocean. So that's actually one way. We've seen some crazy ideas out there where people are like, if we protect whales, we can sequester more carbon in the oceans. But, um, but anyway, we, we got into the space because we we're looking at how to use fintech to scale the adoption of blue, green, uh, carbon, protect biodiversity, protect topsoils, and a number of other things. It's just, that's, a, that's an interesting, there are so many questions that pops to mind because uh, when it comes to a forest, uh, that's very well assigned. The forest belongs to a government, uh, belongs to a private uh, corporation, uh, so it's very tangible, uh, the square uh, kilometers, uh, and uh, you can uh, make an easy calculation on how uh, this is contributing, not cutting down them uh, rather than planting more. So what are the activities and how you can assess uh, the benefits the, the benefits of uh, blue uh, carbon collection, right? Well, there's that's one of the reasons why you're seeing a blue carbon projects are still less common than land-based ones. It's because this measurement, reporting, and verification, which is known as MRV um, in, in the field, uh, it's more challenging with blue carbon projects, right? There are there are dozens and dozens and dozens of companies, standards, scientific papers published on um, arboreal MRV measuring forest uh, carbon capture, right? And then measuring that in an ongoing way, reporting and verifying it. There are standards that have been built around additionality, around, you know, um, other, and I can define some of these terms. People aren't familiar with them, but basically... Um, that stuff is way more advanced. We know far less about ocean carbon, uh, and but we do know that in total, there's more more of it more of it is stored there, right? So like coastal ecosystems, tidal marshes, mangroves, seagrasses, they can capture and store carbon at a rate up to six times higher than mature tropical forests, right? And there's published work on that. The problem is that when you begin to insert uh, financial dynamics into it, you need to be able to tell a customer who's paid for an outcome how much of it can i claim this year how much of it can i retire right. right if you're if you're familiar with how carbon credits work right and so um you know people have their net zero commitments or they're in the compliance carbon markets and they have to actually emit less and so they're looking for ways to emit more if they're in the compliance markets and then if they do that they have to find a way to actually offset that in a trusted way because if you're in the regulated market you can't mess around with that stuff Right, just for everybody else that is listening or watching us now and are a little bit confused with the whole thing, you know, the impact of, uh, you know, pollution rather than cleaning the air that is being measured and collected. So there are places and countries and operations or that have a positive impact and those that have a negative impact. So uh, those that have a negative impact, they need to pay to contribute on the positive side in order to balance out their damage, right? So yeah. this is pretty much in very short, 
and now I wonder with this uh, with this blue carbon, people can say, "Hey, I'm polluting, but the sea is taking care of uh, counterbalancing me, right?" So, yeah, uh, who has the right to claim this uh, this uh, this aspect? Ooh. Well, you asked an interesting question. The rights go to a lot of things, right? It's easy. I was at a conference recently, actually in Lisbon, um, the Economist Impact Summit on a World Ocean Summit, right? And there was uh, there was a person that actually I'm not going to name too many names. I don't remember what the rules were <laughs> on that, but I'll just say that it's one of the world's largest banks and one of the world's largest banks and insurers, chief sustainability officers. And one of their key points was that um, the reason why they haven't made an ocean investment yet is because the provenance of ownership on right. land is very simple. They own the asset. They own the thing that is underneath right. it. They can claim that. With the ocean, the oceans are what are under what's known as um, commons-based governance, right? So, uh, they we have three types broadly, right? There's there's a global commons-based governance. There's private there's private property rights. There's public property rights. Public is the government. Private is private individual or corporation who buys it. Commons is actually what the you know the UN and other global international NGOs and bodies that say. You know, going out to this point from your coast is where your, you know, if you're America or Canada, what have you, your coastline ends here. The rest of it is commonly governed. International. Exactly. And so that in this context, the Economist Impact Summit was really being positioned as something that was a problem. Whereas, you know, I asked the question. You know, being the kind of kind of person I am, I was like, "Well, are you arguing that we should have private ownership of all the oceans?" <laughs> right. right. I, I was thinking, <laughs> as you were talking, I was thinking to set up a website to make a small grid around all the ocean and start selling the NFT for each square yeah. kilometer of ocean, yeah, exactly. so people can yeah. contribute uh, and yeah. own uh, a piece of it. In in fact, that's. Uh, Probably it should counterweight uh, for everybody in equal parts of land. I don't know. That's that's an interesting aspect. If yeah. you're a fisher, I would trust that. If you're in fishery, if you're in um, you know aquaculture, these things. If you're just some person off the internet buying stuff, I don't really think it's going right. to do anything. <laughs> in fact, <laughs> I was ironic. I didn't mean it for real, right? <laughs> oh, it's funny you mentioned that, though, because I see people like this idea all the time, and I think it will happen. I think it could be good. It's just about how well done it is, right? Because I don't think we should be on the other side of this where uh, you know, the oceans are owned by Nestle, Bechtel, and like a couple other folks who... Because at that point, if you haven't built a system that also holds them accountable for the environmental costs that they freely impose on everybody, then you're just going to have the private right to pollute, which is what you have on the land, right? Right, <laughs> correct. Because in fact, at the beginning, if, if we're talking about lakes, there are very huge lakes, that's easier to measure yeah. and to assess, but the oceans yeah. are something something more difficult. For sure. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, in fact, the 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 all all the questions that can come to mind are really putting next to each other uh, green carbon credit, blue carbon credits in terms of uh, how they they exchange. Uh, it's funny because in the crypto world, whatever was uh, a token uh, were were called were called color coins, right? So oh, yeah, I'm wondering that was, that was old school. Yeah, that was like right, 2010, 2011. Yeah, I'm that. wondering if it is this carbon credit we are entering the phase of the color coins as well in terms of how many other measurement. Probably the stratosphere in a certain point is contributing in a certain well, way. So you're gonna have uh, that one as well, right? Rather I can definitely than, fill in a little bit of um, details on that. So like Please. right now, 
one of the main problems with the carbon markets which is that they the voluntary carbon markets is that it's somewhat difficult to get ongoing quality data about the quality uh, ongoing quality data about the efficacy of a carbon credit so like basically um i i buy some credits in year three or four of a project i need to you know i don't really it's hard for me to get feedback on like did, did this did this carbon that was up in the air actually end up somewhere right um and so the problem with vcm is that a lot of people are trying to treat we think you know we think uh, I, i'm now speaking like for our fund right is that uh people think that carbon is can be made very fungible we think it can be but there's going to be some extent to which it's always semi-fungible it's not carbon here we're already talking about green and carbon green and blue yeah. carbon that's a great example but there are other methodologies like biochar um direct air capture there's all these other various things where and enhanced rock weathering which you haven't even touched on and they have different yield curves and what i mean by that is like if you're, if you're coming from crypto right like what does the yield curve look like for uniswap or even something better sushi swap like what did you get from fees when you started staking mm -hmm. your sushi swap versus uniswap they're totally different because one pays fees and the other one doesn't mm -hmm. right and so if i look at something like a forest when you plant a forest i don't know if you guys use video maybe you can see my finger tracing an s in the air um when you plant a forest for the first few years it kind of just trots along it doesn't really capture much then when it starts to mature it goes hugely up like this and then when it, be, when it matures fully it goes back to just kind of being a little bit flat and increasing however when you look at something like biochar it's a linear curve it just keeps going up like this so we we trade these often it's hard for us in the markets to say like uh what's the worth of this biochar project at year five versus this other, this nature-based tree, you know, forest project at year seven. That's a really hard thing, a really hard trade to make, but we should be able to do it, right? And now you're talking about blue carbon. I'm not even, I have to go and read some of the science. I'm sure someone listening is going to be like, that guy's an idiot, he doesn't know it. <laughs> but like basically blue carbon, kelp forests and all this stuff, we have no idea like what, what this looks like when you want to marketize it, put it out there on the market, right? It's not stopping people from doing it, which I don't think it should. But the point with this is that when you compare blue and green carbon, you really have to look at how what rate are they capturing it if they can if they can capture it at a six times higher rate than tropical forests, like the figure I talked about earlier in the pod. That's fantastic. It's great news. Great news for all of us who are sweating <laughs> right, right now, right? But we also need to know how much, like how quickly that is and how fast can we can scale it. And fintech, blockchain, normal, normal TradFi. These are the questions we need to be able to answer so that we can put more money in these systems and get uh, more money out of them on the back end with the climate impact. Do you think uh, also now, because 2023 is the year of artificial intelligence, right? Uh, or, or human dumbness, if you want, on the other side. <laughs> are there model, uh, are there model of uh, uh, artificial intelligence that can help uh, to measure and uh, understand the distribution of, of this because I would think that uh, um, an algorithm that has uh, maybe a certain set of inputs satellite pictures rather than uh, others probably would be the, the most fair methodology to, to value things well yes and no because it's actually really difficult to do so and I think that the generative approaches that are super sexy and getting all the attention uh, are going to be pretty difficult to apply here. There's a different, there's a different school, a different tract within AI called causal AI, who 
that that those forms and methodologies of AI are really trying to understand what causes what. And so there's this, there's a solution concept in um, this is a different field, game theory, called the Shapley value. And this is a really interesting concept when it's applied to forests because basically the Shapley value is um, essentially it if you're dealing with a cooperative game and there's a there's a surplus generated by a bunch of players in the game the shapley value lets you kind of say who did what it lets you kind of okay. give you one you know how important is each player to this game and what payoff can they reasonably expect right and so any ai um, approach that can sort of map a shapley value as a contributor in a in an ecosystem game is really the way you want to be doing this because okay. then you can because if you think about a nature-based solution let's talk about green credits right there's a lot of players involved but the ones who really matter are who planted the trees where did they plant them <laughs> when did they plant them when did they measure them did they right. take any other actions to support them and then you can actually say great what was their contribution to this right and then if you think about that i just talked about the people doing the project what if i also want to include what it what if rainfall is a right. the, is, is is a variable in the right. game what if biodiversity soil health and soil quality are without uh, counting are, the extension of the space that you have to yeah. control because the forest exactly. is small yeah. compared this, to the ocean right? exactly so, yeah. the forest one is already super complicated but you can see that you it's not as simple as feeding a model a a bunch of data and saying and giving it a token and saying what comes next <laughs> right? right like that's right. a totally different thing um but i don't i don't i don't doubt that we can do this there are already people working on this and we're working with some of them to figure this out so my intention to take all my house plants and throw them in my swimming pool and try to catch some money is not to be taken in consideration i think <laughs> not yeah but if you get if you get some kelp powder maybe you can do that if you get some right. kelp going that that might be helpful it is, uh, yeah, it is uh, something that, uh, to be honest, I'm, I, I am like a computer scientist, uh, I'm a cryptographer, I do have a large interest and uh, I'm a blockchain person. Uh, I am entering this world of uh, the impact uh, on, uh, on, on the planet and uh, the monetization of this impact since recently. So I am quite illiterate in these things. And this uh, conversation helped me to uh, understand and learn as much as I hope all the people listening to us are having this opportunity uh, as well. Uh, you know, what is your vision for uh, um, more technological and uh, wise uh, in terms of a human uh, take on life future oh. uh, where things things can be put at play in the proper way? Well, I think like we we're never going to be I, I hope someone there's a there's a betting market or prediction market on this so people can bet on this, but I'll probably be wrong. But I think that we're never going to be able to fully understand every single thing that's going on in nature in a reductionist way that we kind of, you know, we'll be able to work backwards from all the variables and say, this is how it works. But that, does, I don't really think that's where the innovation needs to be where I, this is a FinTech podcast. I actually think what we need to be able to, be, to do is if we look at stuff like blue carbon and green carbon at a macro level, at an outcome level, we know this stuff works. I know that if I plant a tree, it uses carbon to grow, I don't need to know exactly how much at what time. Same thing for blue carbon. I know kelp forests do things. I know when a whale, if I protect whales longer, they they take in more carbon, they die, they go to the bottom of the ocean, they trap carbon. So what we really need to find is what is the overlap between our financial system and 
these nature-based solutions and we need to be able to finance them, right? Because the problem with this stuff right now is that if I want to do a blue carbon project, um, I it's extremely expensive, right? Mm. At its core, you need forward contracts that pay for development costs right away. And then those forward contracts also would secure access to future carbon credits at a discount, right? right? This is where now we're talking about stuff like where an NFT could be useful, right? Like you could have a long-term offtake project that's its representation is turned into an NFT that's tradable. And so now you could bring liquidity to a project where there wasn't any before. And I'll give you a very specific concrete example of people are like, why the hell is this guy talking about oceans and NFTs, right? Like if I'm a project developer, and I maybe I live, you know, uh, in India along the coast of the Sundarbans, uh, which is actually a place where there are blue carbon projects being developed. Right. Um, I want to develop a mangrove project that requires planting a bunch of mangrove trees. It requires a bunch of uh, stewarding these trees over time, et cetera. I have to find the labor. I have to find the trees. I have a ton of costs up front. And now I want to say to someone great. Hey, you know what? You had mortgages that exist forever. Why can't they just get one? Absolutely. They can. Right. So the, so a, you know, let's say a big corporate purchaser like uh, MasterCard or something goes, yeah, let's invest in some, let's do some mangrove projects right there. But they want to say like, how many credits am I going to get in the future? When you plant this, what am I going to get right. in year three, four, five? We can answer that question roughly, maybe within a five to you're going to laugh at five to 30% error. Maybe, right. It's actually wide. It's a wide range. Right. <laughs> But it's still okay. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Sure. We're doing something, right? So what you do is you're the project developer. You go, I'm going to sell you the first three years of what we think the project will deliver at a 50% discount. You pay that up front, right? Great. Mm -hmm. And then MasterCard goes, now the CFO at MasterCard or the CFO's office goes, yo, what if, sell this, right? <laughs> exactly. what if these people suck at this and I have a bad asset? Can I trade it? And like right now, some, the answer is not really. But this is where like crypto, NFTs, deeply liquid markets are interesting is that if you have some of these other technologies we're talking about, like AI or even just remote monitoring, right? Like other things like that, that can say, hey, what's the thickness of that tree? What was the thickness of this tree in the last six months? Is the tree still there? If you can answer that question, you could have an Oracle that accepts that data and updates right. the value of that credit. Now... Uh, not just the credit, the project, right? And now if the project is an NFT and it's constantly being updated and you have a pool of forward contracts that everyone of that methodology across that region or across that world participates in, then now, well, you have yourself a forward market, right? And now this enables you to say, to find out things like, who is a good project developer? <laughs> what are the successful projects that are happening? Who's being traded the most? Who's, who's being dumped on? And you then also create some demand. You, you fulfill the demand for people who are like, I want to actually support these projects and make and claim impact, environmental impact, right? And that's that's where I think the innovation needs to happen and still isn't necessarily happening as fast as possible. I don't think it needs to happen at this magical, like cybernetic nature, like level where we're like controlling it all, like, you know, Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I mean, for sure, what comes to mind at this point is IoT. IoT for measurement, uh, yep. drone, a swarm of drones that go and take aerial uh, imagery yeah. to be elaborated and things like That's that. That's happening too, right? Like, right. And, uh, yeah. 
Because, I mean, at the end of the day, you say mangrove, which is a little bit uh, like one foot on the water, one foot out. <laughs> yeah, it's, exactly. it's, it's easy because it's measurable as much as the green carbon, right? But uh, when it comes to full ocean, uh, full, uh, you know, I, I live in Bali in Indonesia and mm-hmm. uh, sometimes going to nearby island, there is a huge growth of uh, algae. They, they do it uh, simply to make uh, beauty creams or products of other sort. Uh, but uh, you see... Yeah, but you see the extent of this, uh, which is probably is a micro dot in the ocean, but uh, probably without realizing they're contributing in their own way to have uh, a mechanics that helps, right? And it's not so difficult, to, relatively expensive to do. So even in the coastal areas, uh, is it mangrove? It is, uh, you know, uh, a byproduct of uh, some other activity, they have in their hand something that can monetize as well, right? If tomorrow they say, look, we're doing this, we're already doing this for 15 years, we're going to do it for the next 50, right? Uh, with For doing yeah. our beauty product, we are contributing this in terms of blue carbon, and uh, we can also resell this, right, uh, if uh, it's uh, measurable and, and valid. Yep, exactly. And I think, like, that's the thing, right? This is what's interesting. This is the stuff, like, I'll tell you, I can't tell who said this, but, like, I was extremely excited talking to an institutional uh, to, a, to a financial institution yesterday where these folks were saying um they were looking at solutions for their asset managers where their asset managers wanted to know hey we've been giving some loans out to you know um uh as if farmers and real when, when i say farmers farmers like oh you mean like you know the one i'm like no i'm talking about like Fifty thousand hectare gigantic farms like corporations or right and and like we we have been doing our like you know by bi, biannual check-ins with them and they told us that they were able to sell credits in two areas and they were like super they were you know they were yeah. excited about being able to double sell their credits so so then like i was asking i was like so what made you what did you do about that did you go and try to find out like where they sold them and like what's going on they're like yeah well what we were really searching for as a solution as a financial institution was something that prevents double spending and something that gives, <laughs> and that gives us right. the mutability of data and i was like huh. and, 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 <laughs> but it's funny i didn't have to say it they were already working with a blockchain data provider as a bank and i was like that's huge and not enough people are talking about this right because that becomes the real promise of the space is that people are like, what should we doing about, what should we doing about blue carbon? What should we doing about this, that, and the other? I'm like, dude, we already have the solution. We just need to adopt this. <laughs> right. right. And that's, uh, that's very interesting. It's, uh, it's, it's been a pleasure talking to you. We're at the end of uh, our, uh, our time, but uh, is uh, this interesting new planet, uh, surely bigger than all the green carbon, but uh, more difficult to manage uh, and measure. And uh, I don't know, I, I'm interested to see in the future how these things develop. And, uh, you know, maybe we have another chat ahead of time. Oh, well, let me show a little bit for you. If you're interested sure. in this stuff, you should check us out um, on uh, Cerulean underscore XYZ on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter at Against Utopia, at Against Utopia. And then also, we invest in a number of companies who are doing this stuff. So we are looking really closely at Ocean MRV. We're looking, we already have a bunch of investments in nature based solutions on land MRV. And so I think if you're interested in this space, come find us, come, you know, come, come uh, post. <laughs> join the rest of us posters eternal posters you can't get off twitter um and uh and also on linkedin um and we are constantly sharing information on nature data nature markets 
and all the developing standards in the space, especially around blue carbon. There's an upcoming in September, as we get closer to COP and as we get closer to Climate Week NYC, there's going to be a new release from the task force on nature-related financial disclosures, where they'll be basically announcing a bunch of new banks and financial institutions who will be adopting standards around blue carbon and around reporting of nature risks that then is tied to your nature data. And I think like we've talked about, man, blue carbon, green carbon, whatever it is, it's really all about how are we measuring it and how are we financing it? And now we don't double spend it. <laughs> and how we, exactly. And, we're, and and people who, you know, whatever your views on blockchain are, uh, I'm a lot, kind of a maximalist myself, but, you know, um, there's a clear use case for it. And it doesn't, yeah. I don't need to be saying it anymore. Right. I'm not the right, one but it. Unfortunately, there is still a master that when they hear blockchain, they think uh, uh, bad stuff. No, no, it's an instrument. It's a piece of software. How you use yeah. it can be good or bad. Exactly. And for sure, for the carbon credit is a perfect marriage. Thank you again for being with us, Jahed. Uh, this is Roberto Capodieci. This was Breaking Bank Europe episode 184. And uh, see you guys soon. That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Lisbeth Severins, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media. We'll leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast. And in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.